Okay, let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to page three for the reading of Scripture. I want to read the passage that's printed. It comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, and then we move down to chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. Would you listen now with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love? In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, our God, we come to you this time, and I recognize, Lord, that as we have come in here and sung these songs and uh, confessed our sins and been reminded of your great uh, majesty and power expressed in this concept of awesome, Lord, I recognize that some of us come in here uh, and our hearts are there already. Uh, We do see you as awesome. We have experienced your power. We are experiencing your blessing even this day. And yet, no doubt, others of us come in here and these things couldn't be further from our experience. Some of us are here and we are weighed down uh, with shame, with embarrassment, with loss. Some of us are here and we're grieving. Others of us are here and suffering. Some of us are here and we're depressed and downcast and anxious. Some of us are experiencing insomnia. And Lord, I recognize further that some of us come here and have and do believe in you. Some of us have believed in you since as long as we can remember and yet no doubt others of us are here, uh, and we have very serious and very um, significant questions about you that remain unanswered. Some of us are here and are no doubt cynical even about you. And I pray, therefore, that whatever place we find ourselves in today, whether we come here experiencing your blessing or weighed down under the weight of suffering, whether we come here with much faith or dealing with many doubts, I pray that you would give us grace to see and in the way that matters the most, that we all come here ultimately the same. We all have an overwhelming and unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and mind to understand just exactly, just precisely what you have done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome again. It's great to be with you. Uh, we're actually starting a new, what I call a mini-series here at Ironworks. We 
uh, have not completed our fall series in Acts. We're going to do that after this mini-series completes. Uh, but we'll only have about one more sermon in the book of Acts. We have more chapters to go, but uh, as I've surveyed it and thought about what, where Ironworks is at, uh, the last part of Acts concerns Paul appearing before politician after politician after politician. And so we're going to do one of those. We're not going to do all of them, and then we'll move into our spring sermon series on the book of Exodus. But as I've thought about where we are as a church, and I was actually preparing this final sermon for Acts, uh, as Paul was deciding to uh, go to Jerusalem where the church knew and they understood that if he were to do that, uh, that he would be uh, in prison, that he would be bound, and that he would suffer. As I thought about that, uh, I realized that I don't think that at this moment that that's where our community of Ironworks is at, right? So if you're a visitor, I don't know what's going on in your life, but our community, uh, from my vantage point, where we're at is that we're not quite there yet. What I've been finding as I've been walking around with you, uh, and actually this has come up uh, in a number of occasions, and this is why I'm actually changing this series, is that I find that in the Christian life, and in Ironworks in particular at this moment, that we find ourselves needing to become reacquainted with who God is, what he has done, and what he thinks about his children called the church. Right now, you might be saying, Darren, I find that insulting. Well, I'm sorry. Um, I don't mean to insult you. I will a little bit later. Um, I don't mean to insult you, but uh, it's interesting. You know, I say this because in the scriptures, and in particular in this passage that I just read, what the apostle will say to us, what he will unfold for us, is that being reminded of these things is a priority for our holy God. And I'm going to explore this under two headings. Number one, that it's a priority for God to unfold the, what the Scripture calls the riches of his mercy because this is his purpose in eternity. Right? That God's purpose that is brought out here is described as revealing in greater depth the riches of his mercy. So we'll talk about that. And then secondly, the way in which God shapes a person's life, right? So if God is shaping your life, or if you want him to shape your life, I hope that you do. If you want to change, if you have areas of your life that you're not happy with and you want to see them change and grow and develop, the way that the scripture says that happens, the primary tool of God, is actually deeply and richly connected to becoming reacquainted with this thing called mercy, with this idea of grace towards you. So, God's purpose in eternity is to reveal his grace, number one. Number two, God's primary method of shaping a person is through the experiencing of this mercy in a deeper way. Let me try to prove that to you from this passage together. Let's look at it. All right, so we're going to begin under chapter 2, verse 1. What Paul is doing is he is rehashing these things, and he says this. He says, and you, speaking to this church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what in the world is he saying? All right, there was a movie, The Green Mile. I don't know if you saw it. Um, and in that movie, it uh, chronicled what it's like to be on death row. And in this movie, as the uh, inmates would walk towards the execution chamber, they would yell out, dead man walking, dead man walking. And the same language is used in our passage, isn't it? It says, and you were dead in the sins in which you once 
walked. What is he saying? Well, friends, uh, my uh, understanding of what, where Paul is going is he's reflecting on the events contained in the third chapter of Genesis. So if you're not familiar with it, I'll tell you about it. If you are, perhaps uh, you might enjoy a little refresher. Uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he gives his people, Adam and Eve, simply one rule to follow and one rule only. And he says, if you break this rule, if you eat from the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat, in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve uh, understand this. They move forward and they meet this uh, mysterious creature. And the creature uh, is able to persuade first Eve and then secondly Adam that they will have more freedom if they move out from under God's uh, authority, out from under his law, that their lives will be richer and fuller and more pleasurable if they do that. And so they're persuaded and so they eat. But guess what doesn't happen? They don't fall down dead in that moment. God's threat seems to not have happened, right? But of course, as we go on, we understand that when God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, he was not referring to an instant cessation of metabolic function of the organs, right? He was referring to a, such a profound change in life and experience that can only be captured by the concept of death. That in all of their lives, that in all of their comings and goings, that this, uh, this uh, reality of death would be ever-present. And that would be seen, of course, uh, for example, in the fact that this wonderful garden that they used to be able to walk around in without shoes, right, now it has thorns and they need protection. Right, that their relationship, which was based on complete trust and a complete lack of shame, all of a sudden they're ashamed. All of a sudden they need to hide. All of a, and then they have kids and the kids start killing each other. Right, they have family drama. Right, so in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the scripture envisions the primary idea of this word dead is really a deadness to God, an absence of what theologians might call the life of God, right? The absence of his presence in your life and in your experience. And so Paul is reflecting on this, and he's saying, you know, what Adam and Eve experienced, you experienced, right? What Adam and Eve experienced, you experienced, and he says it this way. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then listen to what he says next. Following the course of this world and then following the prince of the power of the air. Now think about that for a moment. Paul is writing to a church. We don't know the size. Probably actually was multiple churches. This was uh, thought to be like a chain letter of sorts. And Paul says, you know, all of you, I just know that you have followed the prince of the power of the air, right? Why is that significant? You see, what Paul is saying is that if you, if you have been alive for any amount of time, then there's no doubt that every single one of you has effectively acted out the events of Genesis chapter 3 in your own life, in your own experience. Every single one of us, Right? What he's saying is that every single one of us has found ourselves confronted with a question of, will we trust in what God has said is good for us, or will we be persuaded by other voices that God is, is not trustworthy, that we should find other ways of living our lives, and should we follow those voices? And what this scripture brings out 
is that what uh, we might think is simply like our own desire, our own you know, mind, he says, is actually the prince of the power of the air. And he says to the entire church, just as I say to you, every single one of you has and probably is in some ways following that voice today. Right? Every single one of us. Right? With Darren Pesnell being a particularly striking example. Right? Paul says that when you walk in uh, transgressing what God has said, which is all of us, and, and he says, um, he will say, that you will use this language of all of us at the end of verse 3, we will say, like the rest of mankind. We walk in transgressions and sins as we follow the prince of the power of the air. And when we do so, we are dead to God. We are dead to experiencing his goodness, experiencing his presence, living in the kind of relationship that he longs for for us. And now, what he will go on to say is that what does God think about that, right? What does God think about the choice that you made most recently? Maybe some of you made it, you know, last year. Maybe some of you made it this morning. Maybe, you know, family rides to church, even for pastors' families, right? Some of the best sinning I do is on the ride to church. I just want to tell you, right? Last week, Chrissy, where's Chrissy? We had a, we had a doozy right? <laughs> Not us, but the, you know, with the, it was like we were all in that space. And I was like, why is this the case? Oh, yeah, it's Sunday. Forgot, right? So, yeah, the last time that you were persuaded to go outside of God's design in any way whatsoever, right? Whether you were adding a zero to your paycheck, okay, or whether you weren't honest with your spouse when they asked you a question that required courage to answer. Right? Whatever the case may be, in that instance, you were following a voice that this passage says is the prince of the power of the air. Now, here's the $10 million question for you, right? What does God think about that, I wonder? Just got to think about that. How does he respond to, to you? Right? What's he thinking right now in that moment? What's he thinking in this moment? Well, let's answer that. So Paul will go on to say in verse 4, he'll say, But God, in response to this church, to our church, to our, my family, walking in transgressions and sins, being persuaded to follow this other voice, in response to these things, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Right, and then I included this statement from chapter one because it uses this word that we don't use all that much, but he describes the response of God to people such as these described, and he uses this word lavished. Now I wonder, have any of you ever had what would be considered a truly lavish experience? It's okay. 
you, Eileen. I see that hand. Thank you. Now, I would like to think that I have, but then I, I met a friend who has made friends with someone who is the 200th most wealthy person in the world. Okay? And he described their experience. And he said, well, we got on his private jet and we went to this place for billionaires in France. And after we got there, we were settled into our rooms. And I came outside to find two Range Rovers sitting there running with staff ready to take you to go get a beer if you happen to want one at that moment. But we decided to go to dinner. We went to dinner, there was a group of us. The bill for our meal was $10,000, right? And then we went back on the plane and while we were on the plane, the private chef came out and took our orders to make us exactly what was what we wanted. And friends, as I, as I was trying to process all of this, right? And he actually said, he said, you know, it's kind of tiring. Like, <laughs> it's kind of tiring living this way. <laughs> Right? As, I, as I started to think and ponder about what that is, it occurred to me that that is kind of a, a slim, like a, a kind of partial perspective of what it means to be, live in a lavish lifestyle, right? Lavish lifestyle. And there's, you know, there's no doubt there's, um, you know, ranges and it's all relative and all that. But friends, this is the word that God uses to describe how he responds to your failures, to your sins, to your unbelief, to your doubts, right? To your car ride to church, those of you who need that. He says, I want to lavish something on you. I have two guys waiting in Range Rovers to take you to go get a beer. I have a $10,000 meal that is being prepared for you by the finest chef in all of France. And that is what he says, my dear friends. And what I have found as both a Christian and a pastor is that this point in particular is the point of Scripture for which there is the most unbelief in the Christian church. Right? It's interesting. I, I spend my time not primarily addressing uh, apologetics questions around science, for example, right? I spend my time primarily trying to convince you that this is true. That as God is acting in your life at this moment, that He's responding to what you've done and what you haven't done, that He wants to do so lavishly, to use this idea, right? So that's, the, that's uh, what this scripture says. And it's interesting. I want to really draw your attention to this uh, incredible statement at the end of verse 7. Look at this with me. You've got to see this for yourselves. Otherwise, you might not believe it. So Paul is saying that, yes, you, you are seated with Christ, meaning that your position is pretty much uh, synonymous to his with respect to what God thinks of you and your sins. And it, that is the case, look at verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now think about the language of this for a moment, okay? Paul is saying that God has raised us up, that he has placed us in position with Christ. Why? Because there will be ages, plural. I don't know how long an age is, but I think it's long. How long is an age, expert? 
doctor, reverend. He says it's pretty long. Thank you. So glad you're here. Um, He says, in the coming plural ages, he might show, demonstrate, reveal, unpack the immeasurable riches of his grace. Do you hear what he's saying in there? That one age is not adequate to exhaust the depth of his mercy and kindness for you. That's one reason, friends, that I feel so confident and so comfortable spending these four weeks in this. Because some people are like, yeah, I've heard this before. I know all about this. Well, if you do, why is it that God is going to take plural, multiple ages to adequately expand it and reveal it? Why is that the case? Okay, That's what this passage says. This passage raises... Uh, a question that uh, many of us wrestle with. This is another question. This is Of all the apologetics questions, this is probably uh, the number one. So we have not believing in God's love. That's probably the most pressing pastoral question. Most common apologetics question goes something like this. If God is good and all-powerful, why is there evil? Right? Anyone ever ask that question? Yes. I know you all have. Thank you, Ray. All right, that is, that is of the most difficult questions to ask. You know, it's the best way to respond to an arrogant seminary student, right? If you ever meet an arrogant seminary student, i.e. all of us, <laughs> the best thing to do is to just simply yeah, explain to me how evil came to be. It's very humbling, right? These are very deep mysteries. Uh, but I finally found one that I think can help us understand it just a smidge more really wonderful um, post-seminary student um, named Augustine. And this is what Augustine said as he thought about uh, why is it that a, that a God who is good would create a world that is so deeply broken, that is so deeply infected with evil. And this is what he says. He says, let us confess with the greatest benefit what we believe with the greatest truth, that the God and Lord of all things who made all things very good, both foreknew that evil was to, and listen to this, to arise out of good. And he knew that it belonged to his most omnipotent goodness to bring good out of evil rather than not permit evil to be. And so ordained the life of angels and men as to show in it, first, what free will could do, and secondly, what the benefit of his grace and righteous judgment now, that's a big mouthful to take in. Let me try to break it down and give you the Darren version. Augustine says, yes, God could have created the world in such a way that there would be no evil. But he chooses to for two reasons. Number one, to show what free will looks like. Right? And I interpret that in some respects to say that you are not a robot. Right? God could have made us all robots that had no capability of choosing evil over good. He didn't do that. He made us with real wills, with real choices. And I believe that's very likely because of the level with which he wants to relate to you, that he wants to commune with you. There's something about your essence that requires these things. But here's the second thing that Augustine says, and I think he actually got it from our passage. He said, yes, God knew that he would create a good creation 
and out of that good creation, evil would rise from good, but that God would then bring good from evil. Why? So that he could unfold the riches of his mercy. That's what Augustine says. I think he got it from verse 7 in our passage. Guys, you need to hear this, right? God's priority, what he prioritizes, what he is no doubt prioritizing for you right here this morning, is to take in his mercies in a new and a powerful way. Do you believe that? Can you receive that this morning? That is, this is not, you know, Darren just making it up. This is his priority. This is what he is prioritizing over the next multiple plural ages to unfold, to reveal, to show what he describes as immeasurable using this language of the riches of his grace and kindness towards us. So that's the first point. God's plan through the ages is to continuously, inexhaustibly reveal the depth of his mercy and kindness towards you. That's the first thing. Second thing we see is that it is the experiencing of that reality by which a Christian is shaped and grows, right? It's the experiencing of that grace and mercy by which a Christian is shaped and grows. Now look at verse 8. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then here's the key verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want you to think about this idea of workmanship, right? Sometimes marketers will use this to describe the engineering of their product. You know, and the the idea that comes to my mind is someone in their shop, you know, taking raw materials, sanding them down, putting them together, creating something beautiful and valuable, okay? Right? That's what they're doing. Now, uh, Chrissy and I were married for, let's see, I want to say seven years, and she never once in seven years heard me ever curse, okay? And then we bought a house. And then in this house, I attempted to install my own stuff because I wanted to save money, and we had horsehair plaster, you know, with the lath up there, and I was trying to install ceiling fan and a light fixture. If you've ever worked on horsehair plaster, you know, you try to like move, you try to saw and it just sort of like jiggles back and forth while plaster is raining down on your head and your wife is calmly explaining to you that you're breaking her house. It's brand new. Um, And it's very difficult. And so I would try and try and try. I would try to mount things on the wall and was unsuccessful, all this stuff. And finally I gave up and I said, you know, this is just not for me. I shouldn't do this. I mean, you know, she's like, I've never heard Darren curse before. And the thing fell on my head. I won't say what I said. It's not appropriate for, you know, children. Um, And so I gave up and I just, you know, I had friends in my life who were willing to come and help me with, or help me to do things. And I would encourage them and pray for them and, you know, like make sure that they had good company during that. Right? But then we moved again and I decided, I said, you know what? I am unwilling I'm unwilling to not know how to do these things. So I began to ask better questions of my friends and learn. And one of the things I found 
is that I didn't have the right tools to work on my house, right? So just here's, here's like the biggest tip I've ever learned in this whole industry, okay? There is a difference between a drill and an impact driver, right? Okay, I had no idea. So I'm trying to use this drill. It's all the same to screw things in. And then, you know, Stephanie comes over and she just says, bam, done. And then Dave gives me his impact driver and I'm like, bam, done. Wow, this is incredible. I can't believe it's this easy. I was stripping screws and all this other stuff for like 10 years. I should have just bought this one tool. I thought they were all the same. Right, and even even with other things, I started looking up what tool do you need, and then for every job, I would buy the tool or borrow it, and I found that it was infinitely easier if you do that. And I say that because what's on my soul, what's important for me, as I think about who you are and where you're at, right, is that you understand the tools of God that He uses to shape His people, right. Some of you desire to be shaped, but you're running to the wrong places. You know, you're using the drill and not the impact driver. Right? What's the tool that shapes you? Well, in this passage and in others, he says it's a result of God's grace. Right? It's a result of, verse 10, the work of Christ Jesus. I want to read you a couple other verses that help confirm this. First is uh, Titus 2.12. Uh, the same author, the Apostle Paul, says this. He says, The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you hear that? He says, if you want to be more godly, if you want to be, have more integrity, right? if you want to experience more power, he's like, the way that that happens is through becoming more acquainted with the grace of God, more acquainted with the kindness of God. Or listen to uh, this uh, quote from the second chapter of Romans. He says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or in uh, the letter to the Hebrews, the anonymous letter, that author says this. He says, it is good to be strengthened by grace. That's Hebrews 13. You see, the main tool that God uses in the life of a Christian is the experiencing of God's mercy. And it is through that, it is when that begins to click at a deeper level that you change. It's interesting. I, one of my favorite pastors and authors and writers is a man named Jack Miller. And I just love everything that he's written. And I decided uh, recently to pick up this book he wrote called Repentance. Now, uh, that was a little frightening, you know. I thought, I don't know that I'm ready for this. But he's such a warm person. I thought, you know, what, what is, why is he writing a book on repentance? So what's this going to be about? And as I started cracking open the pages, it was page after page after page after page saying, you need to repent for trusting in yourself and not believing the riches of God's grace for you over and over and over again. He had story after story after story to draw out, and I found them so resonant within myself saying, oh, you're right. I rely on myself all the time. Right? Every time that I'm overcome with the feeling of failure and shame, 
every single time when I reflect on that, what I'm doing is I'm simply relying on myself and I'm not accepting the fact that my position before God is determined on the basis of Jesus Christ, on the basis of his work, and that his activity is to shape me by the experiencing of his grace and forgiveness. And I will tell you, I had a, had a lousy spiritual week this week, right? I sinned more than usual, right? And some of those were things that I deeply regret. And I was really living under the weight of this uh, yesterday. And I was thinking about this sermon. And it clicked for me yesterday that God is shaping me through bringing me high-definition, 8K reminders that his grace towards me is rich because I have given up. Have you forgotten? Right, where are you at? Well, that's the second point, that God's primary tool of shaping his people is through the experiencing of the love of Christ. And friends, I want to ask you to think about this morning. Where, where is it uh, that you are finding, where in your life have you ceased relying on God's goodness and you've started relying on your abilities, on your talents, on your accomplishments, and you've effectively forgotten who he is and what he's done? Where are you self-reliant? Where is your heart hardened to the love of God, I wonder? Well, if I could uh, quote from the words, actually, that appear on the Ironworks EP, listen to this invitation. It says, are you weary, heavy laden? Are you sore distressed? Come to me, says one, and coming, be at rest. Has he marks to lead me to him, if he be my guide? In his feet and hands are wound prints and the You see, this table that we're about to go feast at is intended by God, and it's why we do it every week, to help connect the riches of his mercy to you in a fresh way. And I want to just invite you, wherever you are on the spectrum, if you're here and you've been a Christian a long time or you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I want to invite you, as you reflect on what's been said this morning, primarily in the Scriptures, I want you to reflect, and, and if you're willing to, to even pray and say, God, would you unpack the depth of your love for me in a richer way today? Would you give me grace to rely less on myself and more on you? Would you show me just a sliver of this grand demonstration that you were planning for multiple plural ages? Would you show me some of that now? And friends, I believe that as we go there together, as we as a church begin to experience this together, the profound change can happen in our church, in our community. Look at the end of verse 10, if you would. He says, but we're his workmanship, right? We're the product of his shop. His tool is grace. And then he says this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, what this passage is saying is that God has designed you for specific things. And he'll get into that more in chapter 4, right? He's designed you. He's gifted you. He's made you. He's shaped you for specific things that are unique to you and who you are as a person. And the way in which you live that well is by being shaped by Christ, by his mercy, by the experience of his forgiveness in such a way that you are able to serve in complete freedom. Right? And one way it works, by the way, you know, if you happen to be, I don't know, let's just say a pastor, Okay, if you happen to be pastor, right, and you really want to preach a sermon that uh, folks like, 
that isn't criticized. And so that's your motivation. And you know, you you surround yourself with the best critics money can buy, and you work on your tone and you work on your humor and all this other stuff, right? And you do that, you might in fact improve. But if as a pastor, as a preacher, if you spend time absolutely soaking in the rich and deep and profound forgiveness of God, then you might actually make a difference in the, in the lives of people. And friends, it's the same for you. Whatever your gifting is, whatever your calling is, if you spend this day, if you spend this week, if this year for you is a soaking in the richness of God's mercies for you, I have no doubt in the power of God to work through this congregation to shape this city in ways we've never seen today. And I long for that. Let me pray for that.